0: Hi there, this is Ken Roundy at USH Med Student. I have two medical students with me here today. They are uh, tackling their final combined podcast project. Let's start with introductions. Uh, Brandon, you want to go first?
1: Yeah, sure. My name is Brandon Brown. I am a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. i um, planning on pursuing anesthesiology. So will be applying to that coming up soon, getting ready and excited.
0: Very good. Have you got some schools picked out where you're applying to?
1: I've got some. Top ones, yeah, but with how competitive it was last year, I'm going to be applying to probably 90% of the programs out there, but I definitely have a few that I'm I'm very interested in.
0: Did you get a chance to listen to the matching podcast, How to Match? I did not. Yeah, that actually, uh, we went back and looked at all the data involved in, in how students match to their programs and what the rates were and those kinds of things. Uh, I think it's a reasonable podcast. There may be some unique characteristics that tie it more to the pandemic years but I think the pandemic years were that that first year where people were doing online interviews it was it was more um, ambiguous it seemed like the matching was a little more difficult this year the last year it felt like students got a lot of top two top three choices that yeah I it seemed to be with. better this year I'll yeah. have to take a listen yeah I think it might 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 be worth it yeah. Might not. We'll see. You've got to drive ahead of you this afternoon, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? exactly. You'll be on the phone with somebody important. You won't be listening to the podcast. <laughs> you no,
1: know, podcast, be number one priority. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay,
0: <Cool. laughs> just oh, Chase?
2: Uh, yeah, so I'm Chase Zaremba. I'm also a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. I'm interested in pursuing general surgery, but everyone here is trying to convince me to go into psychiatry, which I have considered before. So we'll see, we'll see where I end up.
0: So Corey stopped by and said that you got cornered and beat up by the patient advocate and our uh, psychology interns.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they cornered me, and she was doing a really good job. They were. I think they were making it like a motivational interviewing exercise to see if they could get me into that change talk, <laughs> keep that going along. And by the end of it, I really was thinking, man, maybe having a life sounds nice. <laughs>
0: I. I I am fully aware that being a surgeon is a calling and that you have to be ready to dedicate hours of your life to take care of people that are sometimes very frustrating to treat. And uh, quite often those are my patients who end up in places inadvertently and I, I rarely try and talk students into going into psych. In fact, about as much as I sometimes say is have you ever thought about psychiatry? I think you might be good at it. Um, and I try not to say that because I think anybody that's willing to come to the state hospital and learn how to work with patients with severe and persistent mental illness, anywhere they end up in the medical field, as long as they can hang on to that understanding, I think they are valuable contributors to the treatment of psychiatr or the treatment of mental health. And so I, I rarely get involved in those tug of wars, but I do I do have the sense that they were right. I think you do a great job as a psychiatrist as well.
2: Yeah, well, thank you for <laughs> that. I appreciate that a lot.
0: And support you 100% in being a surgeon, but if you change your mind, call me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Welcome to open Arms. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, guys, tell me about the podcast today. How did this topic come up?
2: Well, it first started out when we were discussing like different ideas I was originally trying to think of something that might be controversial that people might want to listen to. So automatically we went to like marijuana and somehow like how it might, you know, relate to the career paths we might be interested in too. So like marijuana and pain, but then we thought that might be a little bit too narrow. And, you know, looking at the studies, there wasn't like as much as we were hoping to find. And then Brandon had the idea of just broadening it and making it more relevant to like this podcast where... Like psychiatry, and then also incorporating pain and things that might be useful in our hopeful career future career paths.
1: Yeah, obviously, pain is something that we will both deal with a lot in our future, and the route that we ended up taking maybe didn't necessarily deal with the kinds of pain that we're going to be dealing with in the future. We're going to be focusing more on chronic pain conditions rather than post-operative, but it kind of started there and moved into this. How can we tie this in with? you know, the psychiatric medications that we learn about on a day-to-day basis with our board studies and things like that, and what else can they be used for? And it turns out that they have lots of uses that aren't just for these psychiatric conditions that we might be dealing with and seeing.
0: So so I'm probably going to say something that I'll regret later um, (laughs) and have somebody tell me that I'm way out of of bounds with what I think I know happens regularly. (laughs) I try to listen. Um, I think that anesthesia is probably the home of chronic pain treatment more than any other field. I I am aware that there are pain fellowships, Mm -hmm. but my impression is that that largely started within anesthesia. So I'm not entirely sure if you end up simply, simply, 99% boredom, 1% sheer terror. Yeah, uh, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, doing anesthesia uh, perioperatively and anesthesia care then you may not see that chronic pain as much. But I think it will still come into play more than you might be aware.
1: Yeah, and I agree. And I have actually been interested in potentially pursuing pain management fellowships, chronic pain fellowships and stuff. So if that were the case, then I would be seeing these diagnoses yeah. quite
0: often. Yeah, quite a bit. So, so it still may end up there. Yeah. It's always hard to know. I'm always amazed at where people end up, mm-hmm. where where the initial trajectory was. I, I really thought a lot about going into rheumatology, which would have dealt with some of these things. Yeah. Um, and also family practice and somehow got lost in psychiatry. <laughs> um, so so it's always hard to know. And then the other part of this is, I, I think you've talked more about general surgery, but my guess is during residency, you'll see patients and you'll probably in, be involved in Uh, with neurosurgeons at some point and doing some sorts of surgery associated with low back pain, which is really one of the significant areas that are involved in this conversation. So I think you might end up with more involvement than you anticipate and uh, more frustration because I think it's a very difficult field. We, We talked about a couple of things leading into this. I think we talked about the opioid epidemic. All right, so a lot of our focus is on psych meds that can be used instead of Opiates to try and reduce uh, building new dependence mm-hmm. in, in opiates. And uh, I think you guys, one of you might have looked up numbers on how many people are dying every year with opiates at the moment. Oh, well, I don't know if I did I think, look
2: that up. I think we may have at one point. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but I remember seeing that the number keeps going up
0: year well, it after keeps year. Going up. And my, my recollection is more people die every year from opiates. I think in one of our previous podcasts, We mentioned that more people die every year from opiates than died in the entire uh, Iraq war. Jeez. Yeah. I I think it's a lot more too, not just a little bit more.
2: Yeah, I I think it's significantly more. Um, Yeah,
0: I think at one point we talked about uh, alcohol deaths, alcohol driving related deaths being somewhere around 50,000. I think those numbers are very old and I think the opiate numbers are well past that at this point. So, So it's a significant problem and the goal is how do we treat pain without um, having people become dependent on, o- on opiates, right? And this is a lot of the, the motivation for talking about this topic. The other thing that I thought was interesting is um, a couple of the articles, I think at one point we were trying to weave in sort of a grandmaster plan for treatment of pain relief. I'm not sure that really fell into place for this podcast. I think mm-hmm. it would have been, uh, I think that requires a different podcast. I do know that most of, um, my CMEs over two of the last uh, three cycles, a lot of my CMEs have come from treatment of pain. Uh, The NIMA, I think the NIH is who it is, has funded a number of CME courses that are designed to help physicians learn how to treat pain without using opiates, right? There's a huge push on a lot of levels to change that. And interestingly enough, I saw a lot of these kinds of medications come up for use. And we're gonna talk about specific indications in a way that I think will help help us all be better at picking the right medication at the right time, at the right place. I, I will just add that, uh, interestingly enough, one of the guidelines that we found for treatment of pain was written by a group uh, funded completely through Abbott Pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. right? Huh. Yep. Um, yeah. So, so I think we tried very hard to make sure that the data we had was the best data we could find. We, we will, on some levels, talk more globally about a few medications. I think in a couple of places we're going to get a little into a little bit more detail yeah. and uh, just join us for the ride. I think to start with, one of the things that you guys wanted to talk about was different kinds of pain. And I think that this has boards implications more than shelf implications, but I think it's pretty valuable. And I think it's important because a lot of the medications that we'll talk about have seem to have Different effects in different places. So, who is it that's tackling pain?
2: I had put on a lot of the different types of pain, and this is actually a pretty difficult list to come up with because every time I, you know, would go to Google or look up any articles on just the definitive types of pains, I would get, you know, like three, and then there would be like a subheading with like three more, and then a, another bullet with like three more, and so it just kept getting like the list just kind of get getting longer and longer. Um, but like, you know, broadly, we think of things like neuropathic pain um, and nociceptive pain. I think those are like the two broadest things. But then under um, nociceptive pain, we have like central CNS nociceptive pain or peripheral um, nociceptive pain. And we have like a different few different conditions that are like examples of that. So for peripheral nociceptive pain, some conditions might be diabetic nephropathy,
0: trigeminal... Di- diabetic neuropathy or nephropathy?
2: Neuropathy, yeah. Sorry, no, thank you for correcting me, actually. I was really confused by the Google results one time when I typed that in, actually, because I was like, why am I getting <laughs> these renal things? Yeah, so diabetic uh, neuropathy, trigeminal neuralgia, um, neuralgia. Um, one condition that I was having a hard time categorizing was uh, fibromyalgia. And that's one thing we've been talking about, because... I found a lot of information saying that it was like a due to central sensitization, but then if you look at the diagnostic criteria, there's like these tender points, and so that seems like more of a peripheral thing. So I don't know exactly how to characterize that, um, but a lot of the information I said put it under that central sensitization, um, or central nociceptive um, pain category. And then I,
0: I just want to point out that with neuropathic pain, I think this is very really important that neuropathic pain is caused by a lesion or a disease of the somatosensory symptom. And with fibromyalgia, I think that it acts a lot like neuropathic pain in some ways. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it acts like uh, chronic musculoskeletal pain. We talked about some of the differences, but we didn't run across enough information, no meaningful differences to talk about in the podcast. I do think that that's one of the key differences, though, between at least fibromyalgia and neuropathic pain is there's no lesion, right? Whereas with uh, diabetic, neuro, diabetic neuropathy, neuropathy the, the lesion is the destruction of the small fibers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, by uh, <laughs> glucose being uh, affixed to those fibers mm-hmm. if I understand correctly. Yeah.
2: Yep, uh-huh. it was the chronic hyperglycemia causes glycation of the axon proteins and leads to progressive um, neuropathy.
0: And then, so uh, there's a couple of other types of pain. You you talked about central being fibromyalgia, p- potentially and peripheral being phantom limb pain, diabetic neuropathy, trigeminal neuralgia, mm-hmm. postherpetic uh, neuralgia. There there are a couple of different ideas about uh, pain. Um, aberrant pain, I think, is a phrase that I, use, that I that I saw used periodically. Why is it that some pain sticks around, right? And there are a couple of theories about that. Mm-hmm. I think that some of these terms that you have, speak to that, and some of those describe just uh, the pathology associated with pain when some of the aberrant uh, pain behaviors start to happen. Yeah,
2: so some of these terms that I've heard used a lot during like our preclinical years and reading through a lot of these papers um, were... Familiar, familiar, familiar to me but they're like exact definition what the author was intending to convey to me I was a little bit fuzzy on so I wanted to define a few of those terms because they are really helpful in understanding the concept of nociceptive pain but one of those terms is hyperalgesia and the definition for that is increased pain to a painful stimuli and I was getting that con- confused with a little bit um, with the term allodynia which is pain to a normally non-painful stimuli so having more pain to a normally painful stimuli, hyperalgesia, allodynia, you know, the classic thing I think of is like rubbing a feather, feather across your skin arm. yeah, and having that um, cause pain. Another um, few terms that I kind of get mixed up a lot are those of dysesthesia um, and paresthesia. So dysesthesia, I read that a lot, but don't say it a lot. Um, but that's the abnormal or unpleasant sensation that's evoked by a neutral stimulus. So kind of like that pins and needles, but it's evoked by something. Whereas paresthesia is the same thing, but it's just spontaneous. So you may be just laying your your foot, maybe just hanging off a chair, doing nothing, and you have that pins and needles. That's kind of that diabetic neuropathy thing. But um, dysesthesia, if you had like a phlebotomy, or phlebectomy, I think is what it is. Sometimes that medication, the reason why I mentioned this is because I had this procedure actually done and they mentioned this as one of the potential side effects is some of that um, medication they use to numb the area can damage the nerves and it can lead to like a persistent um, dysesthesia in that area, which I still have, so.
0: Oh, that sucks. Yeah,
2: (laughs) not great. But I had like a, a big vein over my kneecap that was more painful. So now I'm, I'm happy, even though it's still not great. Interesting. Yeah, sorry, maybe a little bit more information than we needed here. but <laughs> No,
0: it's I think uh, quite often we have students who talk about uh, medical procedures that they've had. Sometimes they realize there's something that can be done while they're in medical school, get it taken care of. Other times it's uh, that medical problem that leads medical students to medicine It's very fascinating to -hmm. to hear those stories. I'm going to just kind of run past uh, visceral and somatic pain. So, sharp pain, A-delta fibers, Mm -hmm. that aching, uh, throbbing pain, dull diffuse C fibers, right? Right. And uh, acute pain, less than six months, chronic, more than six months. Uh, Those kinds of definitions are as important in psychiatry as they are in pain, it looks like. Mm -hmm. And then, um, referred pain.
2: Yeah. So the concept of referred pain we wanted to mention here because it was under like one of those subheadings, like a sub bullet um, of visceral pain. But a little definition of that is, you know, it's visceral fibers from an internal organ and somatic fibers from the skin and muscle converge on the posterior horn of the spinal cord and they share a common pathway to the brain. And so sometimes that can get misinterpreted so that visceral pain can be perceived as somatic pain corresponding to that uh, dermatome or myotone. So the classic su- classic example of this, at least thinking from like a general surgery standpoint, is like cholecystitis, you have an inflamed um, gallbladder rubbing up against the, the bottom of the diaphragm and that's you know c 3 5 keep the diaphragm alive, which also corresponds to your, your shoulder dermatome and it's on the right side, so you can have a referred pain to that right shoulder, that dermatome there, so that's uh, an example and a little bit more in-depth explanation of referred pain. Can,
0: can I admit that one of the hardest things I have to do is uh, after saying cholecystitis, refer to the gallbladder instead of the cholecystic or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I was
2: actually thinking, I was focusing really hard on doing that. <laughs>
0: you did very well. Uh, let's go to a, a let's, uh, a, there is a, a flowchart you have here for treatment of neuropathic pain. Um, Flowcharts don't translate well to podcast do you want to throw me some highlights of the of the flow chart
2: yeah so maybe i'll see if brandon can help me through this one a little bit more because i think this is something that he added on here
1: yeah this is one that was um pulled from a study that just helped us kind of get a good idea is specifically for neuropathic pain and kind of the idea of how we can go about treating it. What our first lines, second lines are, and this goes all the way down to six line options.
0: And where did this come from?
1: So this one actually was from the Abbott study. <laughs> the,
0: the, so the Abbott paper, the I don't Abbott, think it was the it Abbott, great, yeah, 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 Abbott yeah, paper yet. Yeah. The Abbott paper, Recommended guidelines. How about if we kind of skip past that and we talk about the medications independently then? Yeah, yeah. that's totally fine. Um, so I'm not going to. Ta- we're, we're not going to mention the medication initially, Right, we're gonna talk about the case yeah. first, and, and then uh, the goal is that anybody that might be listening, try and figure out what the appropriate medication might be in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: so this is like our um, board relevant um, portion of the, of the podcast, we wanna try and make this something that you could use like a study tool. So I just wanna present this uh, clinical vignette, and I'm gonna be asking for like what kind of medication we're looking for to treat the, these, this condition or these symptoms. So we have a patient who was diagnosed with HIV 10 years ago. And over the past year, he notes a sensation of numbness and pinpricks in his feet, which has now progressed approximately up his lower legs. Uh, looking at the vital signs, everything is completely normal. On physical exam, we note there's a loss of sensation to touch, pain, and temperature over the distal legs and feet bilaterally, but motor strength is intact. So the question is, what medication is most appropriate for the treatment of this patient's current symptoms? So we'll pause and give you a second to, to think about that, or maybe you can hit pause.
0: So so I will um, add to the discussion here just a little bit in that we looked very closely at the FDA approved treatments for all of the medications that have um, these kinds of indications, right? Mm-hmm. And. I'm not aware of any medication that has an FDA approval for treatment of uh, peripheral neuropathy associated with HIV medication.
2: I'm not either, actually, so.
0: So now the question is, what do you pick from the list? And I think anybody who's out there listening to the podcast could pick a number of medications that might be reasonable in this case, but let's talk about the medication that, uh, that uh, some of the shelf prep Uh, things that we've looked at suggest would be uh, appropriate in this case.
2: Yeah, so in this instance um, we were looking at gabapentin as being the correct answer. And some of the key things to look for in question stems is that bilateral distal symmetric polyneuropathy, which can be described as like a numbness, a tingling, or a burning pain. Sometimes it's also described as like a stocking and glove distribution. They use that more so with um, diabetic neuropathy. but motor strength is usually intact. It can be diminished in like later stages, um, and then it has a proximal progression. And then risk factors that you could look for in the stem would be diabetes, but long-standing HIV also, and that was one that I was unfamiliar with. Um, so when I was looking at this question, um, yeah, just I wasn't sure that HIV could cause these types of symptoms, but I ended up picking gabapentin just because it sounded like it was probably the right <laughs> answer. And now, you know, doing the research for this podcast, uh, I'm really wondering if that is the right answer, because it doesn't have an FDA approval. Uh,
0: It is as good an answer as a couple of others, I think. And we're going to get to those. Now, the the FDA approvals, let's go ahead and jump to that. The only pain indication that gabapentin has is? Post-herpetic neuralgia, in adults specifically. Yeah, it, it does have the adjunctive therapy and the treatment of partial onset seizures, um... So adults and pediatric patients three years and older, there's some really great safety data in terms of overdose. I think you can basically eat as much gabapentin as you can force into your stomach and it won't hurt you. Um, But there are some, uh, I think there are some concerns about misuse, um, largely because one of the mechanisms of action is associated with GABA, Right so mm-hmm. this uh, this molecule and pregabalin so gabapentin and pregabalin mm-hmm. both work at the alpha 2 delta um, re- transporter i think if i understand correctly it's a receptor on a transporter yeah exactly it's and, the, and like, it opens yeah. up that calcium uh, transporter uh presynaptically which floods that gaba receptor um, and allows transmission of gaba right into the or postsynaptically allows GABA in. Does that uh, sound right? Um, yeah, I, I,
2: I put a bunch of definitions here. I put one from Hippocrates, one from AMBOSS, and then I also yeah. looked up Sketchy, and the main thing they were getting at is it's decreasing um, excitatory neurotransmitters. So like it decreases glutamate release um, and does that through decreasing calcium intracellular flow.
0: Yeah, everything I've ever read is it's a presynaptic, er, everything that I'm aware of is that it's presynaptic, alpha-2-delta on those calcium channels. Mm -hmm. And and once you start um, opening those up, you're acting presynaptically Mm -hmm. like benzodiazepines do postsynaptically, Mm -hmm. which I think is why there are the concerns about misuse. And there are a lot of those with gabapentin if you work in some of the substance use uh, facilities where where substance use treatment facilities where people are working to become clean and sober, you'll see a lot of hesitance uh, about continued use of gabapentin. And I think the idea is that continued use of any uh, dependence forming medication is unhealthy. And while there is the risk of sudden withdrawal of antiepileptics causing seizure, I think there are a lot of people that feel like there's a dependence built with that as well. How accurate that is, what the data is behind that, I don't know, I'm just reporting what what seems to be pretty common within the field in, in substance use treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some other things that it seems to work on if you do some research looking at, uh, at where else this medication might be working. There's a, a pretty decent article that talked about uh, Purinergic 2X4 receptor activity in knockout mice. I, I'd never heard of the Purinergic 2X4 receptor, um, but apparently there's a micro micro RNA expression that they can turn on and turn off and seems to be associated with uh, pain. Very fascinating. I think we still don't have a good sense of, of why these medications affect pain, largely because GABAergic medications generally don't do that, right? We never think about giving benzodiazepines for pain. We think about maybe muscle relaxation. So the alpha-2-delta story, I think, is still incomplete. Whether there's more to it or not, I I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to comment very briefly on pregabalin. So pregabalin came out in 2004. Mm -hmm. Um, Gabapentin went off patent in 2004. Uh, Gabapentin has a storied history. Did you guys read about Gabapentin at all? Park Davis uh, ended up promoting Gabapentin off-label. And it was... um, And and I never really... I don't know that I still understand the story. But the FDA fined Park Davis and uh, um, Pfizer bought Park Davis. I don't know if that was because they were hoping to get out of the fine or whatever was happening. But Uh, uh, Pfizer got hit, I want to say it was a billion dollar lawsuit in the end, Um, and they ended up paying. It was a painful, painful experience. So gabapentin was dead by the time I think pregabalin came around, or closely uh, near that time. And pregabalin, which also acts at that same alpha-2 delta receptor and perhaps more, Mm -hmm. has more than just the uh, post neuralgia in adults' indication. I show also that it has neuropathic uh, pain associated with diabetic peripheral neuropathy, that it has an indication for, for postherpatic neuralgia, for fibromyalgia, and for neuropathic pain associated with uh, spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. And that uh, also has the uh, partial onset seizure treatment. And, and why it ended up with many more, I don't know. I think the medications have at least one overlapping mechanism of action. So I think that's why we saw other studies looking at gabapentin off label use, right? If mm-hmm. pre uh, or Lyrica is costing three or four hundred dollars a month to prescribe, and I think at the time that that was, I think it was pretty expensive. I think it was two to four hundred dollars in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, 2005 ish to 2010. Um, that's a fairly expensive medication, and gabapentin was dirt cheap, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people were trying to use it off-label the same way that uh, pregabalin had the on-label usages. So you saw things like neuropathic pain, fibromyalgia, and so many other things treated. Mm -hmm. I think you had a list of some of those unusual things.
2: Oh yeah, there's, it was kind of funny. I was thinking, what is uh, gabapentin not used for? When I was looking at the list, you know, just for like, just to go through them a little bit quickly, alcohol use disorder, alcohol withdrawal, chronic refractory cough. generalized anxiety disorder, hiccups, um, chronic pervitus, restless leg syndrome, um, social anxiety disorder, you know, the list goes on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it was a big list, and and I, I think it's interesting because uh, I've read some of the articles associated with some of these things, for example, the alcohol withdrawal, the idea is that if you, you can avoid, uh, well, you're working at the GABA receptor again, right, and you're trying to make it so that somebody can taper off GABAergic um, chronicity with something like gabapentin and avoid a withdrawal seizure. I think those were done in outpatient. Some of those studies might have been done in, in Salt Lake here. Um, there were a couple of articles you looked at postoperatively uh, where gabapentin was used. Any, do you want to give me kind of a summary of those?
2: Yeah. I pulled up several articles talking about post-operative use or investigating the effectiveness of using gabapentin, gabapentin in that perioperative period to um, reduce the, the amount or the time that a patient was in significant pain. I can't remember the, the way they worded that to measure that. Um, oh, The post-operative pain resolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what they were measuring. And then the opiod, opioid cessation period. So they were looking at how quickly can you get over your pain and how long does it take you to stop using opioids? And the consensus of those articles was more or less that using uh, gabapentin in that perioperative period doesn't um, shorten the time you're in pain, but it has a moderate impact on how long you use opioids. So it can shorten the course of how, how long you use um, opioids.
0: Now I'm, I'm going to jump in and say that I think while all of that may be true, this data in a way is out of date. I think at this point, physicians, uh, because of the opioid epidemic, give uh, surgeons. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes two pills, right? Yeah, very few. Very few mm-hmm. opiates. And the idea is if you really need it in the first day, you've got it. But otherwise, you have uh, NSAIDs. So exactly. I I, see, I think in a lot of ways, this data is out of date, mm-hmm. out of touch with the current practice. Does that yeah. sound about right? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah okay. I think so. I don't think that... Um, this is like the standard of care, at least on my surgical rotations. I think there may have been one or two times I saw gabapentin used, but I don't remember my surgeons ever specifically prescribing it.
0: So it might have been in play already is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. You had a, a interesting phantom uh, limb study. We, uh, I worked with, uh, let's see, how, how can I say this? At one point in my life, I worked with somebody who had lost part of a limb, in a setting that i probably can't talk a lot about and uh there were some issues with that about chronic pain i think we ended up using maybe carbamazepine because of what our pharmacy allowed we were in a fairly unique pharmacy we're not sure it ever worked and there was huge secondary gain in that case Mm. And, and i think um that's not usually the case in phantom limb, looking for secondary gain, there's already loss of the limb. But we did see secondary gain be an issue in some of the things we are reading through, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about the phantom limb study that you saw.
2: Yeah, so the in that phantom limb study, they just started off by saying that this is a problem. They talked about how 50 to, or half to two thirds of patients that have an, a surgical amputation have this phantom limb pain. Um, and they, for the study, this was kind of the, one of the things that I didn't really love about the study. Is there was only 14 participants, but I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit difficult to find, uh, you know, a big group of people to perform this study on. But they only used 14 participants, and they tested gabapentin monotherapy versus placebo, and the effect was that they found that gabapentin was was better than placebo in relieving post-amputation
0: uh, phantom limb pain. But and then itching. Post dialysis itching.
2: Yeah, this was, I saw this and I just kind of thought it was funny because I had never thought of using gabapentin in this way. Um, but in this study, they looked, it was a double blind, placebo controlled uh, crossover study. So it was a much better study. And they had 25 hemodialysis patient, patients that logged the severity of their chronic itching or pruritus. Um, and they split them up into two groups. And one group received four weeks of gabapentin followed by four weeks of placebo while the other group had placebo for four weeks and then gabapentin for another four weeks. And then they looked at the, the average rating of how itchy they were from zero to 10 um, in those two periods from when they were using gabapentin and just the placebo. The average rating before treatment between the two groups was 8.4. And with gabapentin, it dropped to 1.2. So it was actually, Pretty significant.
0: That sounds like a big deal. Yeah. I, I I don't have a good sense of how much that means in terms of that uh, that amount of itching, but this yeah. looks like a big deal.
2: I mean, it's it's pretty convincing, like the results they got, and I think they did this the study was um, pretty well done. I think yeah. the only problem with it is it's just a really small narrow problem. Yeah. You know, he patients on hemodialysis. I mean, there's plenty of patients on hemodialysis, but how many of them? chronic itching it's just like um not i don't know a super huge widespread problem
0: i wonder if it's a bigger problem than we recognize it you know if we talked to um if we go into a hemodialysis yeah i
2: bet you it probably is
0: and i wonder how many people are getting gabapentin yeah interesting question um the next uh study so just a reminder again that gabapentin only has the fda indication for, and I have to look at it again, post-herpatic neuralgia, neuralgia. But we've we found some places where itching might be helpful. We looked at phantom limb pain might be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, what about uh, for fibromyalgia? So we know that at least pre has the FDA indication, right? Mm-hmm. What about gabapentin uh, as a use in that if somebody were to get like the, the swelling, the edema that's uh, concerning with uh, Lyrica?
2: Yeah, so... This was a really interesting topic to look at um, as far as use cases for gabapentin. And I was trying to find an article that seemed to be really high quality. And the one I found was this um, 12 week randomized double blind study. And it was designed to compare um, gabapentin, using gabapentin versus placebo to reduce symptoms of pain in these fibromyalgia patients. So they had two groups of 75 and they the way they measured their pain, they called it the Brief Pain Inventory, which is rated from zero to zero to ten. There were other measures they used in this study, but this is the one that I highlighted. Maybe it was just the most easy for me to understand. And the way they determined success was a greater than thirty percent, greater than or equal to thirty percent reduction in pain from mm-hmm. pre-treatment to post-treatment. And so the conclusions of this study was the placebo group had a score of four point six and the treatment group had a score of 3.2, meaning there was a difference of 1.4 or just barely greater than 30%. So according to the way they determined success, gabapentin was useful in reducing pain significantly um, in these fibromyalgia patients, but I didn't really love the way they determined success. Um, but you mentioned something so, else. Yeah, I, I
0: read this a little bit differently, and. Uh... Now I'm wondering if I read it the right way, and and my excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the, the way I understood this was that about fifty-one percent of the active arm, so the gabapentin arm, had a response, but it didn't talk to me about. I, I didn't see what that average response was. I think you went into the average response, and about thirty-one percent of the placebo had response. Yeah, And so what I did is to get a, a response, I, I subtracted uh, 31% from 51% inverted it and got 5, right? Mm-hmm. So you're at 20% inverted, that's 5. Mm-hmm. So my NNT on this study is 5. For every 5 patients that I treat that have fibromyalgia, one of those will get benefit not from placebo effect, but from the active arm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that... <clears throat> while the in under the parameters that they set in the study they found it to be efficacious. I think it's I don't know, I'm not a hundred percent sold based on kinda of like that N N T yeah expense. I think
0: <clears throat> I think we'd have to see better data than this to kind of go, okay, this is uh, top tier treatment considering that there are other medications that have FDA approval.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now,
0: now just a couple of uh, interesting things about this. I felt like this study did a good job in describing uh, how they tested fibromyalgia. And and there's something I didn't know, right? I, I knew that there were pressure points in fibromyalgia, and I think there's is 11 out of 18 points that you have to hit yep. before you meet the criteria. Mm-hmm. And they talked about a Fisher dilometer, which is a one centimeter squared disc that's applied to the pressure point and then pressure is, um, is uh, put on that disc. Now what I don't know is if there's some sort of like gauge inside that uh, disc or whether there's something that presses the disc. I have a tough time knowing, I assume it's the disc itself that has mm-hmm. a reading. And then you get some sort of report. You, you have like an actual threshold that you have to press for the pain to happen mm. or, or to occur and then if that happens, and Eleven out of those 18 spots. Again, if I get the numbers right, then you'd mm-hmm. have fibro a fibromyalgia diagnosis, mm-hmm. and and so I thought that was helpful to hear the description of, of how they were careful about making that diagnosis, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought that was kind of nice. And now I'm ready to get a, di- a set, and <laughs> start seeing <laughs> who yeah dolometers, uh, uh and seeing what I can do dolorometer or dolometer. I'm not sure if I wrote that down. Yeah, right, I'm but D O L O M E T E R. I Spanish,
2: think. Yeah. That's coming through, but...
0: Yeah, dolor, dolor is pain in Spanish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in... Uh, let's see, what was the ancient language? Dolor, rubor, and calor, heat. Oh, it Latin. Latin. It? Uh-huh. <clears throat> so yeah. it might be in Latin, too. That's
2: probably more what they're going for. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't I'd suppress. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> going
0: out of a limb there. All right, I want to change gears just a little bit. So... Um, There are some theories that we we talked about, uh, gabapentin, we talked about that alpha-2-delta mechanism of action, uh, antagonizing that, and uh, I think keeping calcium flow going, therefore affecting these channels. Um, But we don't have a great mechanism of action on that. I don't know that we have a great mechanism of action on uh, another group of medications, Um, but we're going to talk about that after we talk about another case scenario, right?
1: Yep. Yeah, so we're gonna dive, to, um, dive into another question. Presented similarly as the first one so that we can give you guys a chance to test yourself and see if you might be able to get the right answer here. This one will test in a little bit of a different way. Um, but yeah, we'll jump right into it. So we have a 64-year-old man that comes to the emergency department. He has abdominal pain. Um, he hasn't urinated for a full day, hasn't had a bowel movement in several days. Um, in his past medical history, we find out that four weeks ago he had herpes zoster that even though the rash has gone away, he still is having pain in that area. Um, Physical examination shows a tender um, suprapubic mass, and then when we did an ultrasound on it, there's an anechoic mass in the abdomen. Um, Question asking, what medication may have caused this patient's symptoms? So it's kind of jumping at you from a few different areas here. You've not only got to be able to recognize what you're treating here, but the side effect of that medication that's Um, Being used,
0: so so I'm. I think you guys. I've always been a little bit jealous of my Rocky Vista University students because they got to play around with ultrasound a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. You guys, I think had access to some lab, and you'd take your buddies in and go, "Hey, let's look at this."
1: Yeah, COVID made it harder for us. Mm -hmm. We didn't have access as much because of that. But our first year was packed full of ultrasound, and it was pretty cool. Near the end of second
2: year, we had a lot of a lot of ultrasound. Yeah.
0: Yeah, see, I'm totally jealous of that. I don't think I've ever held the ultrasound handle in my life. <laughs> Unless the OBGYN handed it to me and said, hey, you can try this, too. You're a doctor, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess, but... And then he
1: took it. He's like, you're in the wrong spot. Yeah. The wrong spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so I've always been jealous of that. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that that suprapubic ana- anechoic area is the bladder, and it's filled with urine.
1: And you would be correct there. So we're dealing with here, um, obviously this patient has a little post neuralgia. He has that pain, even though the rash is gone. Um, and then he has this urinary retention, um, most likely caused from the anticholinergic effects of a tricyclic antidepressant, which was used to treat that post neuralgia. neuralgia.
0: And, and interestingly enough, even though the case scenario uses this medication, tricyclic antidepressants don't have any FDA indications for that.
1: Yeah, and I think that was something that we were all shocked at when we came in. I think there was a like a full hour almost that we spend there. like I swear there's got to be an indication somewhere. We're all searching, but yeah, it's not there. Mm-hmm. Even though it tends to be the most studied and most documented of antidepressants for the treatment of chronic pain, there is no FDA indication for
0: you it. You found a couple of articles that were very, I think, fairly well written. Mm-hmm. Do you want to comment on those at all?
1: Yeah, and they, they covered a, a couple of different things. Um, one of them I'm not going to touch on as much because we hear a lot with these antidepressants as well that they help with the um, treatment of migraines and like prophylactic for migraines and headaches. Um, So I think that's something that's worth mentioning. Main article I wanna touch on is one that had to do with fibromyalgia patients um, and the use of amitriptyline. There's three groups that amitriptyline, one with amitriptyline, naproxen, and a placebo group. Um, And they were measuring several factors of the patient's care with fibromyalgia from a tender point score, the patient's pain, Patient fatigue, sleep difficulty, patient global assessment, and physician global assessment. Um, let me.
0: This is the naproxen study, right? Yes. The Goldenberg? Yep, mm-hmm.
1: exactly. Um, and so it was significant improvement in the naproxen, amitriptyline, and amitriptyline groups alone. Naproxen only added a slightly higher benefit than amitriptyline alone, but they all had a significant improvement in all areas that I mentioned for the patient's treatment of fibromyalgia.
0: The the theory behind this is interesting. SSRIs don't seem to work the way that SNRIs do.
1: Yeah, because I mean, serotonin clearly plays a big effect here. Um, We talked about pain a little bit earlier, um, and there's a key factor with this pain that we hadn't talked about much until recently, and it's the descending pathway of pain. Um, we know about the ascending pathway that goes up to um, to help us know that we have pain. But there's descending pathways as well that help regulate our pain. Um, and it's this descending pathway that in a lot of ways, when it's not functioning properly, can lead to the chronicity of pain. Um, so is
0: this like, um, just so I understand this, because I'm not very good at neuroanatomy. I, this was... One of my tremendous weaknesses.
1: I'll agree with you there on, on my end as oh, well. Oh, I thought you were agreeing. I sucked into that. own Actually, yeah, I did I guess we're all for myself. <laughs> um,
0: and, so when we're talking about descending pathways then, are these pathways that we, we've always talked about how pain kind of ebbs eventually, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we become accustomed to the pain. Is it the descending pathways that mediate that effect?
1: From what I understand, I think it plays a big part. So these descending pathways um, meet in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, which is where a lot of the synapses are occurring to send the nociceptive pain up to our brain. Um, And these are serotonergic um, axons that enter into the dorsal horn and release serotonin and norepinephrine. Um, And those do a few things. Primarily, one is they stop the release of substance P across the presynaptic cleft, which stops that action potential from continuing. So you would imagine with SNRIs, TCAs, things like that that increase the amount of serotonin and norepinephrine in the neuromuscular junction that you're going to have more prevention of that substance from crossing and stopping that pain pathway from reoccurring.
0: I, I think it's interesting. I'm looking at one of the tables that you cut and pasted into the notes that we're looking at. And it says uh, things like venlafaxine has uh, good data for use, evidence-based support, and use for antidepressants. Did you find the randomized controlled trials that might suggest that?
1: Specifically for, for venlafaxine? De- for
0: venlafaxine, yeah. Because I don't, I don't remember seeing great data for that.
1: So that was one. Honestly, I didn't look at it a ton because when we got to the NSNRIs, I focused a little bit more in on duloxetine.
0: And the reason why?
1: Because it is the only antidepressant that actually has an FDA approval for treatment of pain.
0: Um, with the caveat that Milnasopram doesn't have an FDA indication for depression yes, in the United Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I want to just throw in, so you put some work together here that's really nice in terms of a high yield, like snapshot on TCAs very quickly. Orthostatic hypertension due to alpha 1 activity, cardiotoxicity due to sodium channel inhibition, which is uh, prolonged QT. And remember, one of the reasons why. Um, prescribing or treatment of depression moved from psychiatrists to family practitioners was because Prozac was no longer dangerous like the TCAs, right? A week's worth of medication would kill a patient if they overdose and no primary care physician really wanted to be involved in determining whether somebody was safe enough to take the antidepressants, um, rightly or wrongly, right? And so uh, that that was heralded the change where now family practice Providers provide more care for depression than, than psychiatrists. Uh, a remarkable change. Arrhythmia, confusion, uh, constipation, ileus, urinary retention, dry skin, uh, dry eyes. And uh, I think that's um, summed up in.
1: Yeah, I think those I are important
0: to note. Mad as a hatter.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, yes. Oh, man, I can't
1: remember what. Now I can. Red Spray as a beet, season.
0: dry as a bone, and one more, I think. Um,
1: Those are important to remember for you out there studying for step one, step two. Keep those in mind.
0: Yes, even though we're still missing one. (laughs) I I also want to point out that you uh, put some notes down uh, that surprised me. I didn't read the Wong article, which was from 2017, but I was uh, somewhat shocked by this.
1: Yeah. Um, We hear these tricyclic antidepressants, and I mean, it has right there in the name. It's an antidepressant. You'd think that's why... We're using these medications. But this article um, searched through electronic prescribing systems to see why these were actually being prescribed. Um, they had some super interesting findings um, that specifically amitriptyline was ex- almost exclusively prescribed for off-label indications. 93% of the time was being prescribed for off-label indications, which is the pain. So you have that. Maybe seven percent of the time that it was actually being prescribed for. So,
0: so I think you said seventy-three percent, but I think you meant ninety-three yeah. percent.
1: Did I say seventy-three? I meant ninety-three. I
0: think I, I may have heard it wrong. But just to cli- mm-hmm. just to be clear, ninety-three percent is off-label, yeah. um, and most commonly for pain, which is somewhere around fifty percent mm-hmm. of the time. Insomnia, insomnia, migraine migraines. Well. Yeah, those are those are something else. Yeah,
1: that was me. a really interesting finding.
0: We talked about this a little bit, and I'm, I won't deviate for too long. We talked about this with Trazodone, I asked both of Mm -hmm. you if you had ever seen Trazodone prescribed for depression, and neither of you had, I don't believe. No.
2: Exclusively depression, not a single time. Uh, Depression with insomnia? A few times, but most of the time I've seen Trazodone used exclusively for insomnia.
1: That's Mm -hmm. that's been my experience as well.
0: Interesting how, and one of the things I think uh, I've done more and more is talk to students about what's the FDA indication, what's the FDA indication, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is sinking in.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> that one's sinking in. Uh,
0: let's go to uh, duloxetine, also known uh, by the trade name as Cymbalta. Yep. And I think it's off patent now, is that right? I think think, uh, when it came along, I was shocked because the average price of an antidepressant up to that point, I think, was somewhere around 60 to 80 bucks. And I think duloxetine was 120 dollars a month, so four dollars a pill. Uh, About the time it came out, uh, citalopram had gone generic, and you could buy it for four dollars for a month supply at Walmart. They had the four dollar meds. I don't know if they still do. Um, And so it was. I I think it was. there were some other things that came into the field at the same time and maybe for another discussion, but I think the, the real strength that Cymbalta brought with it was that it looked at SNRIs in the past and said, hey, we think that it's an SNRI benefit that causes this, and we're going to do the studies and get the data and get the FDA approvals for all mm-hmm. of these things. That way when somebody has depression and neuropathy, we're the first choice, right? Yeah. So uh, talk to me about this case study. Who has this? Yeah,
1: so this one's me as well. So I'll continue on. And these ones will have a lot of overlap in the way they work. But yeah, we have a case study here. Um, 49-year-old woman comes in the office with depression. Um, In her past medical history and past social history, she lets you know that she quit her job several months ago just because of increasing numbness, tingling, and painful burning sensation in her feet. Um, Since she quit her job, her depression has just gotten worse. Things have been compounding on each other. Um, You also find in her past medical history that she um, has hypercholesterolemia, type 2 diabetes, um, she's on gliposide and lisinopril. Um, and then you are tasked to give her a medication to treat her symptoms that are occurring. Um, and since we kind of already talked about what we're going into next, the answer for this question going in was, was duoxetine. Um, a big part of that being, we're obviously dealing with some diabetic neuropathy here, with um, the tingling in her feet, her of diabetes, and then this patient's also suffering from depression. So with those two together, deloxadine kind of seems like a home run choice to hopefully be able to treat and help this patient.
0: And a home run choice, not because you have two symptoms that come together, but because you have two diagnoses that come together that have an FDA approval. They're both Um, FDA approved, yes. Yeah, that's there are a lot of times that I have students that are talking to me about elegant pharmacology or pharmacotherapy, and the idea is well, there is this symptom, so I can treat two things with once, at once. But I think unless there's an FDA approval for it. Focus on the FDA approval, Mm -hmm. right? That's the first thing, Mm -hmm. and tolerability. Um, Let's go ahead and go down. It does have the uh, MDD and the GAD um, FDA approvals for, for duloxetine. Now, the way these notes are written, and I can't remember, does it also have panic and social anxiety disorder? I don't remember. It says here that venlafaxine does, but it was in my mind that uh, panic and social anxiety were there as well.
1: Yeah, I've got it right here. We've got major depressive disorder, GAD like you said, um, and then those ones aren't actually included with duloxetine and then it moves on to the diabetic neuropathy, fibromyalgia.
0: So panic and mm-hmm. social anxiety or venlafaxine, mm-hmm. but not duloxetine, okay. Yeah. Uh, pain indications, diabetic mer- neuropathy, fibromyalgia, um, d- again, uh, and chronic musculoskeletal pain and that's interesting to me. So we talked about, uh, before the podcast, we talked a little bit about fibromyalgia. It seems to have a foot in both worlds, right? Mm-hmm. Where with neuropathic pain, there has to be a lesion with uh, fibromyalgia. There doesn't have to be a lesion. It still has some characteristics of neuropathic pain, it seems to us. And yet, um, when you look at some of the literature, they talk about uh, chronic widespread pain. CWP was that the what the Brits called it, which I think is their diagnosis for by bromalgia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing that, yeah. I, I, I think that's what that is. Um, this this uh, surprised me. So two years ago, uh, four years ago, th- three, three years ago, somewhere in there, I'm, I'm doing uh, my CMEs, right? I'm cranking through online CMEs. I talked about this a little bit before. It's uh, put out by National Institute of Health to try and get physicians to use fewer opiates. And I see uh, Cymbalta show up for chronic uh, musculoskeletal pain as an answer. And I'm like, "Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I had to retake that (laughs) (laughs) section. That that surprised me that it has this chronic musculoskeletal pain FDA indication. Mm -hmm. So osteoarthritis. Yeah. Osteoarthritis, because um. I think that's when when we talk about chronic musculoskeletal pain, I think one of the articles that I read was that gets to essentially a couple of areas. One is back pain, one is knee pain, and the other is fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how the Brits saw it yeah. in, in the article we looked at. And then in the United States, I think we've broken that out differently. Um, and maybe we're maybe I'm misreading this. It's always hard for me to know. But but I was surprised by that osteoarthritis, kind of being called skeletal, musculoskeletal pain, and then having this medication and treatment.
1: Yeah, and one of the main studies I looked at too just kind of seemed to bunch everything together. Um, it was a meta-analysis of 12 separate studies um, and just said quote-unquote chronic pain, and in parentheses said diabetic peripheral neuropathic pain, fibromyalgia, chronic pain due to osteoarthritis, and chronic low back pain. It just bunched those all together. Um, so there has to be obviously some overlap of how those are affected with the duloxetine because it seems to be effective in the management of all of those, obviously with the FDA approval.
0: Yeah, that, the, and you're talking about the Wang article, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Sir. So yeah. And and I thought it was interesting because you, um, the, the, quite often I talk to my students right at the beginning of their podcast to Cochrane Reviews, find what's in there. And then we get a Cochrane review and it kind of guides us the direction of where the data seems to be heading, right? Mm-hmm. They'll say, on balance, SSRIs and SNRIs together don't seem to help chronic pain, right? And then they'll say, however, if you separate out this from this, you start to see a signal. And I think that's what this article showed, right, that this review said was essentially your SNRIs really are much different than your SSRIs in terms of post-operative pain.
1: Yeah, for whatever reason the SNRIs tend to actually help, and I think it is just that addition of the norepinephrine in that descending pathway that we were talking about that really helps facilitate um, that closure of those chronic pain pathways.
0: Now milnasopran is an antidepressant approved in Europe Mm-hmm. I completely forget about this all the time. What does milnasopram have an FDA approval for in terms of pain?
1: So, currently in the United States, the only FDA approval of milnasopram um, is for the management of fibromyalgia.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. And did, did you see anything about market share or any of the articles about it, or was that sort of a, oh, yeah, there's this one too? It was kind of one that
1: I just, I just found by happenstance, because it's not one that we tend to heard of, hear about much in school either. Um, so it was one I kind of saw. was like, oh, I think that's interesting to include that yeah. we have this SNRI that's generally treated for depression that actually is only FDA approved for pain treatment.
0: And it, it, So when I, I think when I was uh, in my last year of medical school, I had bought a small book. Uh, the medication book for psychiatry was about that thick at that point. <laughs> I, it's about four millimeters for those of you that are watching on, on uh, podcast. Um, and it said something along the lines of pending approval, milnasopram. And it never got the approval, mm-hmm. right? I think even levo levomilnasopram mil, was attempted at one point. just never got the FDA approval. I'm not entirely sure why it was approved in Europe and not here. We, we've talked about other examples of that in previous podcasts where uh, lithium was FDA approved for depression, but in, in Europe, but not in the United States. It's only approved for mania here, right? So it it happens. Yeah. Um. And uh, now here we are, twenty something years later, and it has an FDA approval for pain, mm-hmm. which I think is just fascinating. It's very fascinating. Yeah. Um, carb carbamazepine. This was uh, I think we weren't originally intending to do this because we didn't we didn't really have the same amount of time to kind of dig into this, we will just point out that this is one of the FDA medications that uh, is sometimes used in treatment of trigeminal neuralgia. Uh, that's the only FDA indication that it has for pain, is my understanding, has the epilepsy uh, indications otherwise. Um, my, I have two brothers and uh, they both went to dental school. One of them specialized in endodontics. The other uh, went and became an oral surgeon I guess you could say the family was potty trained at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are six doctorates in the family now. (laughs) That's impressive. Maybe. (laughs) Depends on who you ask. (laughs) Depends on who you ask. And they're both commonly talking to me about referred pain versus uh, uh, fibromyalgia, versus versus trigeminal neuralgia. And uh, very, very fascinating. How that uh, how difficult that can be to get that diagnosis and and not pull out teeth that wouldn't necessarily have to be pulled out. I think it's more challenging than than our test bank questions tell us. Yeah, yeah I think a lot <laughs> of things
2: are that way, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, carb would work for this. I think amitriptyline is used off-label, and I suspect that uh, I suspect that. Um, duloxetine is used off-label. I suspect Avapen is used off-label. But our FDA approval is CARB, right? And so yeah. I think if we're talking about sticking with FDA approvals, it's with carbamazepine. Yeah,
1: other than that, you just got to look at your, your patient and see their side effect profile they can handle.
0: Now, there was something that was kind of interesting. I think we had originally intended to go down uh, different pathways, and I'm not sure if I uh, was not communicating very clearly. But I think, Chase, you put together a lot of work looking at augmentation of pain strategies with antipsychotic medications there's some data there it doesn't seem impressive
2: yeah yeah there there is data there and dr roundy is exactly right it is not impressive at all we you know put together like this big outline to talk about antipsychotics and how we could try to make it sort of relevant but it's just the research isn't really there. I think um, olanzapine was the only thing that I saw, or the thing that I saw that had the most um, convincing evidence, Um, but when you weigh the potential side effects and the monitoring you have to do on patients with the modest effect it might have, it's like sixth or ninth line treatment. It's like if you happen to have like this ideal patient that has psychosis and you know, headaches was one of the things they talked about treating, using it to treat. Then perhaps it would be helpful for that. It might uh, be fifth blind at that
0: point. It might be fifth blind,
2: <laughs> yeah. but the 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 problem with that is, if you have a psychotic patient that has headaches, you're probably going to give them an antipsychotic anyways. And so, if it has an effect on the headache, uh, yeah. yeah. So, but taking patients with headaches and giving them antipsychotics. Definitely a lot more research needs to be done on that. Mm -hmm.
0: I think the other takeaway I had was there was a lot of data saying that first-generation antipsychotics had no benefit, clearly no benefit, Mm -hmm. or or very limited. Mm -hmm. And when that benefit kicked in, the the side effect burden was super high. And second-generation antipsychotics had uh, more benefit and maybe less side effect burden. Now, I think those studies were written long enough ago that... um, Maybe the weight gain issues weren't uh, being looked at as closely. The diabetes issues weren't being looked at as closely with the second-gen medications. Because I, I do think there is a burden with every single medication. Tardive dyskinesia is terrible. It's a first-generation uh, side effect, right? 2nd mm-hmm. uh weight gain and uh, diabetes, uh, hypertriglyceridemia, those kinds of things are, are still a problem. Mm-hmm. So, So I think we can stay away from those. Yeah, yeah. I think think our last area of discussion is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. So, this, I think I also had to repeat the section on (laughs) that had CBT as a treatment technique in those uh, NIH sponsored uh, CMEs that I was was looking at because I was like, well, they're just saying that because I'm a psychiatrist. They're (laughs) trying to throw me off here. (laughs) Um, Tell me about CBT.
2: Yeah, so we were really excited about CBT and the implications it could have for modulating pain. The problem was, I think Brandon and I, when we came up with this idea for this podcast, we wanted to think of a topic that was more broad so we would have enough to talk about when we got here. But I think we may have overdid it a little bit <laughs> because we got kind of bogged down in some of these other topics. So when we got to CBT, we could kind of just run out of a, a Energy. Yeah, energy and time. (laughs) And so I I wish we had more to say because it's super interesting. And maybe one of your future students might want to pick this up. Um, But for us, we can kind of talk about briefly what we read from it. And what we saw is that a specific type of of psychotherapy that seems very related to cognitive behavioral therapy called cognitive functional therapy has good data for... has some data, at least, yeah. Has some, yes, <laughs> that, has let's data. say that. It has, <laughs> it has
0: data. So, uh, so I'm going to jump in a little bit here, because mm-hmm. I... Not that you're floundering. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, this is the part I was like dreading the
2: whole time. I was like, Don't we're going to have to talk about CBT. So,
0: so let's talk about it this way. There is a lot of data for CBT and pain. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's mostly broken down into something called... Um, pain something or another it's like CP something T so but it's it's a CBT based process that looks like it's fairly widespread Um, and this this process has been duplicated in a lot of different ways right so um, pain for coping skills CBT pain for coping cells, so it's like CBCS or PSC or something, Mm -hmm. and I think that's one that was in a number of studies. Um, Here's the take home that I, I, uh, we also had a study that was A CBT by telephone study, that was the Macbeth study in Archives of Internal Medicine, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, This was back in 2012. The idea is if you can't get the therapist to people in the community, can you get the people to the therapist? Mm -hmm. And telephone apparently was before, I don't know if you guys are familiar with those things, they used to be on, like in the community, you could actually pay, put a quarter in those (laughs) things. Um, Yeah. Uh, Cell phones, right? This is all gone, (laughs) and it's all video now. But, but the idea was, if you could call somebody, does it work? And it looks like it has some benefit, right? So mm-hmm. chronic widespread pain, this was the uh, article on fibromyalgia out of England that we looked at that seemed to say that this chronic widespread pain was the same as fibro. Um, and what they showed was basically an NNT of four for people that you treat will have some benefit in their uh, pain. There was another study that I thought was really well done by uh, who was this it? Was the Broderick study? Yeah, the Broderick study. I really liked the Broderick study, um, which, where essentially they said, "Hey, there's, there's so much data on CBT for pain, and there is. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to do it again." And this was only osteoarthritis, right? I was. This, mm-hmm. this is where I continue to be sort of like, "But that's not neuropathic pain, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's that's just hurts. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, that's acute." Delta fiber pain, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's not small fibers mm-hmm. in the bottom no. of your toes. That's so, so I was really confused by that. But, but the article was really interesting. Uh, the Broderick team said, listen, we know it works. The effect size is small, but there's an effect size, right? So usually NNT, somewhere four to five, I think, on a small effect size, if I remember correctly. Um, and I probably don't in this case. And they said, so who is it that benefits from CBT? And, and at first they said there was no difference between people who had good and poor coping skills. So uh, there's this, uh, what was they called, a CMIs or something like that, um, people that were had in, interpersonal distress, they thought, well, there are people that cope well and people that don't. If you put somebody that copes well in a CBT program, they'll already know how to cope with pain, so there's no benefit to that. Turns out that's probably not true. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they seem to think that maybe it is true, by the end of the article, I couldn't quite follow that. Mm-hmm. The MPI that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, MPI.
1: interpersonal distress rash score?
0: Yeah, so they talked about that. But one of the things I think that they said most was, hey, we, we looked at, like, 85 variables Mm -hmm. to see if there was difference. And I think that does have some problems with regression analysis. And they actually kind of admitted that, I think. But they said basically everybody gets pretty good benefit from CBT for pain. And that if you really want to break out the best benefit.
1: Yeah, there's a couple interesting groups. So best benefit were patients that had a moderate to high expectation of this treatment working for them going into it. Um, if they have low expectation, it didn't seem to be as beneficial.
0: Yeah, they didn't say what mediated that. I don't yeah. know if that's like how hard somebody worked or anything else, but mm. I thought that was a fascinating finding.
1: Very interesting. And then the other groups that it distinguished between was older, more educated patients seem to benefit more than younger, less educated patients. Yeah,
0: yeah and, I, and I think that's, so, so one of the challenges I had with the study was it, it seemed like generally there there's a lot of still uncertainty about who truly benefits and who doesn't, mm-hmm. because even when they were talking about those differences, I think they had to pee hack to get down to older people that are educated, because when they were talking about educated versus non-educated, that difference wasn't as pronounced. Yeah. When they talk about, I think the older always stood out. People mm-hmm. who are older were always doing better with CBT. Was my impression, yeah, which which was interesting to me too. Um, in any case, I think that article kind of speaks to the idea of CBT works on some level, it has some effect for, for some portion of the patients, it's a reasonable part of a pain management strategy and now they're starting to look and see how can we um, find more details so that we can make this more effective for the right person, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. yeah, And and maybe we do the same thing with medications who has the CYP450 pro <laughs> profile that makes uh, Simbalta better than um, pen right? Yeah. Um, or the, uh, what was the microRNA one that I talked about a few minutes ago? The the puri- puri- puridine 2X4 receptor? i, I still probably going to find out more about that in the future. Um, so so I think take-homes. Let's list the FDA-approved medications for the conditions. Let's start with carb.
2: Carbamazepine, trigeminal neuralgia. Mm-hmm.
0: Duloxetine
1: duloxetine, diabetic neuropathy, fibromyalgia, and chronic musculoskeletal pain.
0: Um, the next one would be gabapentin.
1: Um, that was
2: post neuralgia, and then it had one other indication. Seizures.
0: Seizures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then pre uh, pregabalin. I don't mm-hmm. know if we have that one right at our fingertips, but I know it has the same indication with the post neuralgia
2: plus fibromyalgia,
0: Um, and then, oh man. Post-trepetic neuralgia, fibromyalgia, neuropathic pain associated with diabetic peripheral neuropathy, and neuropathic pain with uh, spinal cord injury, plus the seizure indication. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, do we have anything else that's FDA approved? Not TCAs, right? TCAs aren't. Not venlafaxine, not SSRIs, Mm -hmm. um, not benzodiazepines, right? No. So so a handful of choices, and I think the idea is we can target those medications towards the FDA indication. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any other things, comments you want to add in?
2: I'm just grateful for this opportunity, even though it was really difficult (laughs) trying to go through this. Um, I feel like I learned a lot about these different drugs and when when to use things off label and how to try to do that in an evidence-based way. Even if it may not have an FDA um, approval for that, um, I think there's still a lot of medications that can do a lot of patients good. We just have to you know, find out, find that evidence to support that, so.
0: Yeah, I think I asked you guys a question that I don't have a good answer for yesterday, if you remember. I said uh, something along the lines of, let's say you have somebody with pruritus, uh, Associated with um, dialysis, I'm not aware of anything that has an FDA approval. So, I'm, do you not treat that condition if there's not an FDA approval?
2: Yeah, I, that's that's a tough question. And I don't think we really came to a great answer. I don't think we did come. To we were a kind of
0: stunned. So, so then the question was: I think there are medications that are indicated for itching, mm-hmm. right? And if they don't work, do you then start looking at something like gabapentin for? Uh, dialysis associated pruritus that's not responding to other medications. And I think that's where we are with this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think probably in my mind I would be a lot more likely to use um, a medication first line that is indicated and doesn't have a contraindication like allergy to the Mm -hmm. medication or something along those lines. And then after that doesn't work, I, I don't know which direction I would go. I mean, I think one person might say, well, I will use Uh, If trigeminal neuralgia seems like a neuropathic pain, maybe, then I will go ahead and try gabapentin. But another, because that has uh, an indication for post-herpatic neuralgia, right? Um, but another person might say, okay, well, I, I think I'm going to go to the literature and see if I can find any articles that support the use of anything. Mm-hmm. What are the options in post neuralgia, and what is the FDA indication, what can I, or, or if there's not an FDA indication, rather, what can I use with some backup and then document that in the chart, right? Mm-hmm. Here's why I chose this. The evidence suggests moderate relief for some percentage of the people. The trial was uh, randomized, controlled, and blinded, and it's the best data I can find on a backup now mm-hmm. that I can no longer use something that's FDA approved. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's probably the way I would go is more to the data rather than try and guess what, what might be most effective based on current indications mm. once I'm out of the indication. Yeah,
1: yeah. that makes sense. I agree.
0: Um, other take-homes or other thoughts?
2: When in doubt, just throw gabapentin at it. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently, it's good for everything.
0: There were a lot of studies on gabapentin, weren't there? Yeah,
2: and I'm probably giving uh, Dr. Roundy a, a headache saying that. So, char- just, charlie horse. charlie horse. Yeah, right charlie here. horse. Yeah, for yeah. all of
0: my students that have met me before, they're all aware of the charlie horse I get uh, right there on the frontotemporal area. Yeah.
2: No, I was, I was really interested in gabapentin, and I probably read way too much about it and spent way too much time on that. <laughs> But it, was, it just was really interesting, all the different uses it has and, you know, looking at that. So it was just really interesting.
0: It's a fascinating medication. Um, I think there are a lot of off-label uses. It's used in a lot of ways. And uh, I think at one point probably there will be a student that does gabapentin. The greatest things. Then sliced bread might be the topic. Yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> um, like I said, the Park Davis story is pretty impressive too, and I, I don't think we got into that very much. I think we have in another podcast. Mm-hmm. But Park Davis got hurt, mm-hmm. or, or Pfizer did with that lawsuit. Wait, did we, Did we? Did you look it up?
1: Um, I didn't get a look over. It's yeah. not like right before we jumped on, so I didn't get a look over very much. Yeah,
0: I remember we were talking about the cost of bringing a new medication to market. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little very over costly, two,
1: like $2.6 like the average cost a new med to market.
0: Yeah, Yes, so, and, and we tried to figure out the cost of adding an indication, right? Because yeah. we talked about Lyrica having indications that gabapentin didn't. Mm-hmm. Just because the primary mechanism of action is the same doesn't necessarily mean they're the same medication, though, and we've talked about mm-hmm. that with antidepressants, right? Mm-hmm. Some SSRIs have... N FDA approval for PTSD, for example, and others, the, the trials didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. Other take-homes?
1: I mean, I think a big, like, going through this, it just got me excited for, you know, the true, like, art of medicine. There's different ways you can approach things, different ways you can help your patients out, and it's just all about searching for that data. Like, we were I mean, it's kind of what we were just talking about. The data's out there, go find it. Find the things that will help you take care of your patients, and I don't know, it got me excited.
0: I think I, good. I'm glad to hear that you got excited, and I also hope that this podcast helped you. Um, I, I think some of the first articles that you guys pulled together weren't very good.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. they were not very. There's good There's some all. trial and error. Yeah, definitely. And I
0: think you guys got better. I mean, there's there's clearly you know as, as I like I was like throwing my hands in the air before the podcast because I'd made it through two sections. Right, I was like, I can't believe this. These guys are <laughs> in so much trouble. <laughs> and and then like the more I went into it, the more I realized that. Uh, there was a lot of good data in there and they in part the outline didn't reflect some of the articles I think were the top tier articles yeah. right so in some of the podcasts what we end up doing is talking about the top tier articles but but this podcast was somewhat different because we talked about the medications that have FDA indications, and then we brought in some additional I- information about off-label use, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so there wasn't as much use in reviewing the articles that had led to FDA indication. I think you had the uh, Duloxetine, mm-hmm. or at least one of the articles that led to the FDA yeah. approval for diabetic neur- uh, peripheral neuropathy, yeah. if I remember right. And, and I thought that the articles that maybe talked about use of um, the uh, amitriptyline tricyclic antidepressant were probably um, pretty helpful at that point.
1: Yeah, that and yeah, I, I agree. The articles that seemed to teach us the ways that we could use these beyond the FDA approvals are the ones that yeah. tended to have some of that data.
0: My take home is. Uh, I am now really confused about fibromyalgia. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's
2: a yeah. good one, too. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I can just leave it at that. It's a confusing condition.
0: It's chronic musculoskeletal pain, but yeah, it feels but. like fibromyalgia. Yeah, yeah exactly. But it's not.
1: Uh-huh. There's some neuropathic pain, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. As
2: an interesting diagnostic criteria. It's clinical, but there are, like, things we can do to make it more objective.
0: Yeah with, uh, what is it, Fisher Fisher Discs?
2: Fisher Dolorometer. Dolorometer, yeah. yeah.
0: I'm going to get a Dolorometer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure some of my friends will think it's too inflict pain, but uh, <laughs> just to measure
2: it. Yeah, just to measure it, exactly.
0: Guys, uh, I think we've come to the close of the podcast. Uh, any other high yield or anything else you want to mention before we call it?
1: All right. I think, I think we're good. If
0: not on that note, Team out.
1: Team out. Team out. Team out.